When I was growing up, the word repent always confused me. And I think it was because normal people didn't use the word repent. Like, the, the, my, my friends and I would never use that word. The movies we watched never used that word. The music we listened to never contained that word. The only people I was aware of who ever seemed to use it were fiery Bible thumpers who would stand on street corners and, and, and shout at people as they came by. And so I had some sense that people were supposed to repent because there was, there was something wrong with them, I guess. But I never understood how repeatedly, how repeatedly yelling a word a whole bunch of times was somehow supposed to make us love God more or be better people. Now, at, at some point in college, someone explained to me what the word repent actually means. It, it simply means to turn around. So the idea is that if you're walking in some direction and you repent, you turn around and you go the opposite way. So if you're stealing from your employer, you need to repent. If you're gossiping about your friends, you need to repent. If you're an Ohio State fan, <laughs> you need to repent. <laughs> if you have an iPhone and, and you are liking texts sent by people with an Android device, You need to repent. <laughs> if you're putting pineapple on your pizza, you need to repent. <laughs> Go the opposite way, my friends. <laughs> but joking aside, there's a reason, I think, that while growing up, I hardly ever heard someone use the word repent. And I, I think that it's because repentance is hard. It requires us to admit that we're doing something wrong and to stop doing it and to do the opposite thing instead. It's uncomfortable to consider, and it's even harder to do, and so repentance is relatively rare. And that's why what we're about to read together tonight, what you just heard, in fact, on this video tonight, is truly remarkable. Because in Jonah chapter 3, just 10 verses long, we'll see repentance happen twice. Once for Jonah, and then for the people of Nineveh. And in both cases, they receive extraordinary grace from God, because God's grace is freely available to those who repent. We're going to unpack that truth together this evening, so please join me in a brief prayer as we open God's Word. God, thank you for the privilege of being here with these friends tonight as we study your Word. 
Thank you for this story of Jonah, which can at first seem so strange, but contains such incredible truth about who you are and about who we are. God, would you bless our time in your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting on page uh, 16 in your packet, we're going to read Jonah 3, just the first four verses to start. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Pause right there. Okay, so these opening lines here in chapter 3 should sound pretty familiar because they sound remarkably similar to what we heard Mark share last night in Jonah chapter 1. And, and here it is again. I'll just, I'll just read. Here's from chapter 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Okay, that sounds really similar to what we just read here in chapter 3, right? But, but here, two chapters, one poem, and a lot of fish vomit later, our text continues a little differently than it did back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, it said, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here in chapter 3, however, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. These accounts, friends, are very much intentionally parallel. The author wants us to look at these similar verses and ask ourselves, why didn't Jonah simply obey to begin with? Because he ended up doing what God initially asked him to do anyway, right? Like if it weren't for Jonah's stubbornness, it sure seems like he could have saved himself and others and a fish an awful lot of trouble. Jonah could have chosen the easy way, but he chose the hard way. Now you guys probably have at least one friend like that, right? We all have that one friend who, who never seems to choose the easy way. We all have that one friend who, who you know, has the money to get the car repair done, but he's like, nah, 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 I'll take care of it. How hard could it be? And we all have that one friend who knows full well that her next class is a seven-minute walk away, but at like three or four minutes before class starts, she's like, yeah, I should probably get her going real soon. Okay. Why rush? She's still got time. And we all have that one friend who, who you know, says they don't need to study or, or to join the study group because for them, they'll just cram the night right before the exam. They operate really good under pressure. <laughs> Some of you are getting poked right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because listen, I, I actually get you. If you were just poked by your friends sitting around you, I get you. I really do. I mean it. Some of us just seem to have something within us that cries, no, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be another way to do this thing, another way to approach this situation. You are all about taking the road less traveled, right? 
And you probably have that hanging up in your room. Or your, your... <laughs> so, some of you really do. Wow, okay. Um, <laughs> there's a hunger inside you, though, right? There's a passion. There, there's this passionate belief that you're driven to pursue with reckless abandon. And listen, that can be a truly amazing character trait if used rightly. Like many of the world's greatest explorers and inventors and even missionaries had that very trait. Like Lewis and Clark surely had that kind of drive. The Wright brothers surely had that kind of passion. Steve Jobs definitely had it, and so does Elon Musk. Like, you, you know these names. P people write amazing biographies and make epic movies about people like that because those people did epic and amazing things. And listen, when firefighters and Coast Guard workers have that trait, do you know what we call them? Heroes. We call them heroes. When everyone else is standing off to the side where it's safe, it's people like that who run into the burning building or dive into freezing cold water just one more time because someone might need them. That's the road less traveled. And I deeply admire that kind of drive. Don't, don't lose that if that's you. Don't lose it. Don't let anyone squelch that in you. But listen. If you and I fail to temper that hunger within us with an appropriate humility and a right sense of our standing before God, those same passions within us may lead us to try unsuccessfully to ignore God's clear commands. Just like Jonah. Do you see that Jonah-like tendency in yourself? I know some of you do here. Do you see how choosing the hard way has maybe caused a few problems in your life? Maybe more than a few? If so, hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. My ambitious friend, if you've been running away from God, take heart because it's not too late for you to repent. Maybe you've been running for weeks, maybe months, maybe years. But this weekend, the word of the Lord has come to you a second time. Because our God is an extraordinarily gracious God. Because our God is a God of second chances. He, and he delights to use your hunger and your zeal, gifts which he himself gave you for his purposes. So if that's you, grab a towel, wipe off the fish vomit, and do what the Lord is calling you to do. Maybe it's something that God said to you during a breakout session today, and you wrote it in your notes, maybe with a trembling hand, or you started, or you underlined it. Maybe it's something that, that God said through Mark last night or Jordan this morning that you just can't get out of your head. Don't ignore that, friends. Don't, don't ignore that. Embrace it. 
That's the word of the Lord calling you to repent. That's God's grace to you. That's your second chance. Why not take it? It's not too late for you to repent and to receive the grace of God. That's what Jonah did. And here's what repentance looked like for him. Picking up again in verse 3. Okay, verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah takes his second chance, and he arrives at Nineveh at last. At last. And, and just as God had said, this city is indeed great. It's enormous. It takes three days to get across. Okay, just for perspective, and I don't know who measured this, but somebody figured out that it takes about 18 hours to walk across New York City. It takes four times that long to get through Nineveh. Wow. So Jonah goes one day's journey in, just a third of the way or so, and he, he shouts these few words, and that's it. That's it. That's the whole message that he has. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Does that seem strange to you? Anybody else think that's weird? Think about this with me. Like, first of all, if I had just had the experience that Jonah had, I don't know, I, I think I would have said just a little bit more. Like, maybe I'd mention how I just spent three days inside a giant fish. That seems notable. I'd at least want people to know that I don't normally smell this bad. Or maybe I'd recite a few lines of that poem I just wrote back in chapter two. You know, like, you'd think that that one line about paying regard to vain idols would at least grab someone's attention. It's a starting point. But no, the whole message is just these eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And you know what? In the original Hebrew, it's not eight words. It's just five words. So, like, can you imagine if I had gotten up here tonight after that really nice intro that Becky gave me, and I gave a five-word message and sat down? <laughs> Breakfast is at eight. Good night. I can't even say the name of this conference in five words. Relentless grace, the gospel according. <laughs> kind of lacks the punch. So isn't this weird? Like, is Jonah repenting or not? Because back in verse 2, remember, God said this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Call out what? The message that I tell you. So is this it? Was this the message that God dragged Jonah all the way out here to Nineveh to proclaim? Now, now maybe we can be charitable and assume that, that the narrator here is just giving us a summary of what Jonah said. But I don't know. I mean, that same narrator dedicated an entire chapter to his little poem in the fish. So... Seems at least a little odd not to include the full text of his sermon here, given that, you know, this was presumably the whole reason he was sent by God to begin with. And even if it is a summary, let's go with that theory. Let's say it's a summary. Aren't there a few things missing here? 
Like, all we have is, number one, a place name, Nineveh, which is probably pretty obvious. Number two is an outcome. It'll be overthrown, which is terrifying, by the way. Maybe you want to expand on that a little, Jonah? And at number three is a time frame. 40 days. Clock's ticking, guys. I'm out. That's the sermon. So what's missing? Okay, how about God? Even the sailors from chapter 1 got to hear that Jonah's God is the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Like, that at least gives them something to grab a hold of. But Jonah, Jonah doesn't say a word about any of that here. Moreover, Jonah doesn't give any kind of action plan. Like, repent. Stop oppressing the poor. Stop putting pineapple on your pizza. Something. You're like, there's, there's none of that here. No help, no mercy, no hope. Why? Why does Jonah not even try to understand that? We have to, we have to back up just a moment and talk about Nineveh. Most of us here probably don't really know or care much about Nineveh. Perhaps, perhaps the, you've never heard of it before, or at least outside of some Jonah storybooks. And, and Mark just began to unpack this a little for us last night. So let me, let me open it up a little bit more for you. Okay? Nineveh was, was located somewhere in that like 550 to 600 mile northeast of Joppa range, like Mark showed on the map last night. To get a sense of that, try just imagine walking, uh, walking from your campus to like Chicago or Nashville. Like, that's, that's the kind of distance that Jonah had to walk to get there after his whole fish vomit experience. Now, Nineveh was one of the oldest and greatest cities of iniquity. And, and, and it, was, it was the flourishing capital of the Assyrian Empire. And, and we actually owe a very great deal to the Assyrian Empire because many of our modern technologies that we take for granted were first invented there. You probably didn't know this, okay? These include things like locks and keys, uh, paved roads, the postal system, the first use of iron, the first libraries, and even the first plumbing and flushable toilets. Thank you, Assyria. Much appreciated. However, Assyria's rise to prominence, and Nineveh's, their capital in particular, was accomplished via a truly horrifying degree of merciless brutality to the nations around it. Stone carvings that, that filled the walls of the king's palaces, uh, king's palace in Nineveh, have been discovered, including this inscription regarding, regarding one king's conquest of Babylon. Here's what he wrote on the walls. Its inhabitants, young and old, I did not spare, and with their corpses I filled the streets of the city. That's, that's his boast. That's what he would look at every day. Here's an, another boastful account. It's even more graphic. So if you're squeamish, you might want to be warned here. Here's what he said. I destroyed. I demolished. I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. I flayed the nobles and spread their skins out on the piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. And many I took alive. From some of them, I cut off their hands. From others, I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. And I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. 
That's the stuff of horror movies, guys. Except it was real. This was the standard operating practice for the Assyrian Empire. This was their conquest playbook. Friends, the Assyrian Empire was destructive and violent on a scale that the world had never before seen. And Jonah's own people, the Israelites, were in no way spared, which led the Israelite prophet Nahum to write of Assyria, upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So friends, we, we may be surprised and unimpressed with the extent of Jonah's little five-word sermon until we realize that we might as well expect a bloodied African slave to preach a word of hope to his brutal white plantation owner or expect an emaciated Jew to share his last crust of bread with a guard in his concentration camp or expect an Afghani mother to speak a word of peace to the Taliban member who just executed her daughter for the crime of daring to step outside. I submit, friends, that if we were in Jonah's shoes, we might have kept our sermon as short as possible, too. Yet here's the remarkable thing. God sent Jonah anyway. There is absolutely no doubt that Jonah didn't want to go. But Jonah had repented back in chapter 2, and God saw fit to use him. So be warned, friends. God may do the same for you. He may be sending you where you do not want to go, and you may feel that your heart is not right or your skill is not great, and that apparently doesn't matter. If you've repented of your sin, if you've decided to obey God, that's really all that's required because our God is a God of relentless grace. Now, Jonah's repentance, as we've seen, is not yet wholehearted. And as we'll learn tomorrow morning in Jonah 4, We'll see that God still has a deeper work of grace to do inside of Jonah. Not because Jonah's suffering isn't real, mind you, any more than the the suffering of the African slave or the Jew of the Holocaust or that Afghani mother isn't real. But for Jonah, there is yet a greater reality he hasn't yet seen. And we'll come back to that in just a bit. But for now, I want to shift our attention from Jonah to the people of Nineveh. Because at the conclusion of Jonah's little sermon here in verse 4, where we stopped reading, that's the last time we see or hear from Jonah for the rest of this chapter. So let's pick up again in our text, starting in verse 5, to see the grace of God for Nineveh. So we're going to read through the end of this chapter, starting in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, 
Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, although Jonah's sermon had given only a place, an outcome, and a time period, that is apparently all it took. Verse 5 tells us simply that the people of Nineveh believed God. With hardly any information, instruction, or direction, Jonah's tiny sermon went absolutely viral. We're told that this grassroots movement started with the people in verse 5, but it impacted everyone from the greatest of them to the least of them, even to the king himself in verse 6. Now, The king at that time was likely Shalmaneser III, but he's not even mentioned by name here because it really doesn't matter. In fact, the greatness of his name seems to be the least of the king's concerns in this text. Rather, the flow of this text in verse 6 implies that the moment that he got word of this sermon, he immediately stood up, he took off the symbol of his power, He put on a a symbol of repentance in the form of this itchy, uncomfortable sackcloth. And then he sat back down, not on his throne, but in ashes spread on the ground, which is yet another symbol of repentance. Listen, guys, I don't know how many people Shalmaneser III may have killed, maimed, or otherwise oppressed. But what I do know is that every indication here is that this guy was as poised for repentance as an Olympic sprinter is poised on their starting block for a race. And all it took was a second-hand account of a measly five-word sermon. But the king isn't done. He next amplifies the efforts of this movement by making an official decree. Everyone had already been fasting, and he basically made it an official holiday, adding that no one should even drink water. And everyone had already been wearing sackcloth, and so he extends that mandate to include the herds and the flocks. Isn't that hysterical? Like, the image here, guys, is that Nineveh's repentance is so complete and so sincere and so pervasive that even the cows and the sheep are repenting. And in case it's not yet all perfectly clear, in, in verse 8, the king calls everyone to call out mightily to God. Everyone, he says, should turn from his evil way and from the violence that, in it is, that it is, is in his hands. And that, friends, is utterly astounding. Because as we've already seen, those evil ways and that horrific violence had been standard operating procedure for the inhabitants of Nineveh for generations. But not anymore. They're done. And and then it gets even crazier. Because this, this text tells us here that they didn't even know for sure that this would work. In verse 9, who knows? 
God may turn. He may turn and relent and turn, just to make sure we don't miss this. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Who knows? Like the king is saying that if there's even one tiny glimmer of hope, let's everyone grab hold of it, even the sheep. Guys, if there is anything more that any of the inhabitants of Nineveh could have possibly done to show their complete willingness to repent, I don't know what it is. There, these are the least likely of all people doing the least likely of all things. The entirety of the people of Nineveh, that great and wicked city, repented. So let me ask you guys, are there people in your life that you think would never, ever repent? Maybe they've done something too terrible for too long. And so we tell ourselves that, that if they ever were to repent, they'd surely have done it by now, right? So it ain't going to happen. Or maybe it's that they're simply in it too deep. The lies, the money, the prestige, whatever it is. We tell ourselves that if they ever were to repent, they'd lose everything. It would simply cost them too much, and so they'll never do it. Or maybe there's just too many of them for repentance to happen. Like it's an entire family, or an entire community, or an entire culture that has done something horrible to you, or to your family, or your community, or your culture. We tell ourselves that even if one or ten or a hundred of those people sincerely repented, it'd be like a week before they'd cave into pressure and go back to their evil ways. But friends, this account in Jonah 3 testifies against us that our expectations are simply too small. It's not like the Ninevites were blind to these things themselves. Like they could literally look in one direction and see that their sheep are covered in sackcloth, and then they look over here and see the flayed skins of nobles lining the walls. But guys, repentance doesn't mean that your past goes away. And repentance doesn't mean that all is forgiven. Repentance doesn't mean that it's all suddenly easy. No, repentance means that you turn around and you go the opposite way. And that's exactly what Nineveh did. So those people in your life that you think would never, ever repent they might, at this very moment, be poised to fast, to put on sackcloth, and to call out mightily to God. Do you believe that? The Lord God, through our text tonight, is asking you, do you believe that? Do you believe that the relentless grace of God is available for them. And, and listen, maybe, maybe that, that person in your life that you think would never, ever repent is you. What you've done, no one could forgive you for. 
What you feel, what you think about, no one could ever accept. You came to this conference not, not because you're especially religious or looking for God or whatever. You came because a friend invited you. Maybe you came just to get them off your back. But repentance? No way. No way. You can never be like these people with their sincere faith and cheerful outlooks and strange songs and memorized Bible verses. And friend, if that's you, let me assure you that I understand. When I first encountered God through the ministry of disciple makers in college, I had already spent years building up arguments against people just like these. I purposefully, very intentionally, filled my mind with movies, books, music, pornography, and blasphemy that I was certain would convince anyone paying attention that I did not fear any so-called God and that they might as well stop trying. I was a lost cause. I was a lost cause. But neither you nor I can be truly lost when confronted with relentless grace. And there it is. There's that grace right there in our text in verse 10. Here's verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Disaster was coming for Nineveh. All together deserved righteous, righteousness-fueled disaster was coming upon that people for the abundance of their evil ways. But because of of Nineveh's repentance, God's limitless grace was unleashed. God relented of his disaster because he would not relent of his grace. And friends, you too can turn from your evil ways. You may not be guilty of the specific sins of Nineveh, but you and I both know that we have fallen far short of God's standards. We know it. We know that we've not honored him as we should. We've not given thanks to him as we should. But what we have done is treated him and the people made in his image as, as less than ourselves. We've been selfish. We've been hateful. We've been evil towards him and others. And we've known it. And we've seen it. And maybe we, we kind of hoped that God didn't. But... If Jonah can repent, and if Nineveh can repent, and God will graciously forgive them, then there is great hope for you and me. Because our God is a God of relentless grace. Now, while that may seem initially comforting, and I hope it is, something's still off here, isn't it? Maybe you've picked up on it, because this, this raises a really serious question that we have to reckon with here before we close. Is the grace of God just? Is it fair? I, I believe it is, but I want to end our time together tonight by seriously considering that question, because it's very, very important. So, listen, the fact that Jonah repented, and God gave him another chance is wonderful. 
I think we'd all say that. In fact, that, that Nineveh turned and God relented of the disaster is fantastic. I think we'd say that too. Is that merciful of God? Definitely. Like, is that gracious of him? Without question. But friends, we must ask ourselves, is that just of him? In his mercy and in his grace here, is God failing to do what was right? Like, is evil let off the hook here because they're sorry? For some of us here, that may not seem like a big deal. You're like, why are you asking this, Tom? I don't get it. Maybe, maybe being sorrowful, sorrowful over wrongs done sounds just fine to you. What's the problem with that? Well, let me tell you, I don't think our Afghani friend from earlier would be like, oh, you're sorry. Oh, well, I suppose my daughter's just unmurdered. Okay, let's go, let's go get drinks. No. No, absolutely not. And I don't think our, our Jewish friend in the concentration camp or our African friend on the plantation are going to feel like justice was served just because somebody put on sackcloth. Oh, you're itchy. <laughs> oh, well, I suppose I'll forgiven then. Do you see what I mean? Do you see the problem? that we have to wrestle with here. Listen, I'm, I'm certain that there are many of you right now who are sitting here listening, and, and, and in a crowd this size, I feel like I can be certain about this, you have been treated horribly by other people, and you're not about to give them a pass because they're sorry, because they feel bad. I have no doubt that many of you in this room have been abused, abandoned, assaulted, exploited, humiliated, taken advantage of, lied to, cheated, gaslighted, who knows? Maybe even terrorized. And I don't expect any of you to feel satisfied simply because the people who did those things to you stopped eating for a few days. I mean that. That's not justice. Listen, friends, Repentance does not satisfy justice. It doesn't. So repentance and humility and brokenness in the midst of all the absolutely horrific things we human beings have done to one another and to God is good and right and appropriate. I'm not questioning that. We should be humble. We should be broken. We should repent. But none of that is enough. None of that makes it all right or replaces that which was destroyed. Repentance does not restore purity. It cannot restore innocence, and it will not heal the scars. No, repentance does not satisfy justice because there's still a price that has to be paid. God knows this. Justice was his idea. And and the Bible teaches us that our God, in all his relentless grace, nevertheless, will never let the guilty go unpunished. The price will be paid, friends. The price must be paid. And so, how? How is the price paid here among these Ninevites? The answer is found in a surprising place. Verse 5. Verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. 
They believed God. And as we saw, the end result was that they were saved. So their salvation came about not by the sufficiency of their actions, because fasting and sackcloth cannot restore ruined lives. We know that. They knew that too. Moreover, their, their salvation came about not by the strength of their beliefs. It couldn't have because they only knew a pittance based on Jonah's tiny sermon, so they had practically no idea about, about the nature and character of God. So no, friends, their, their salvation came about not by their actions or by the strength of their belief, but by the action of the God in whom they believed. But how does that work? Why is belief sufficient? How does, how does faith result in justice? Do, do you know? It's in this way. Our God, the Lord, who made the heavens and made the sea and the dry land, would one day send his only son, Jesus Christ, to be born into this world. Jesus would live a perfect life, completely free of the rebellion and wickedness and selfishness and violence that lived within the Ninevites and within, within the guards of those concentration camps and within you and me. The Bible calls that sin. And although we deserved to pay the terrible penalty for all our sin, in order for justice to be done, Jesus graciously and willfully paid the full price on our behalf by suffering and dying in our place on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. And so now anyone, no matter who they are or what they've done, can place their faith in Jesus Christ and be truly and completely forgiven. That's what the Ninevites did so long ago, even if they didn't fully grasp it. And that's what you and I can do today, even if we don't fully grasp it. Because salvation comes about not by our actions or by the strength of our belief, but by the action of the God in whom we believe. That's relentless grace, friends. Our God is a relentless God. In fact, there's only one thing our God ever relents of, and it's right there in verse 10. Did you see it? God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, both to the Ninevites and to us, and he did not do it because he's already poured it all out on Jesus. That's how the grace of God satisfies justice. Does that sound hard to believe? If so, you're not alone in thinking so. You may remember that Jordan referenced Matthew 12 earlier today. Let me read it again for you. It's right there in your packets. Matthew 12, starting at verse 38. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And listen, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
So you see, friend, you're, you're not alone in finding Jesus' teachings hard to believe. Others who encountered Jesus wanted a sign too. More proof, more evidence. But friends, Jesus is calling his listeners, including you here tonight, to repent and to believe in something greater than Jonah. Perhaps like the Ninevites, you still have little idea about who God is or what his son, Jesus Christ, did for you. But what you do know right now, right now, is enough. And you can be saved. Not by your actions or by the strength of your belief, but by the action of the God in whom you believe. And so, friend, you're not a lost cause. There's no such thing. The same relentless grace is available to the prophet and to the Ninevite, the Afghan and the Taliban, the Jew and the guard, the slave and the slave owner. It's available to you and it's available to me in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, how humbling it is to recognize that the men of Nineveh will rise up and say, even we repented. We heard five words and we believed. God, I pray if there is anyone in this room right now who is still wondering about whether it's worth it to follow you, about who you are, about your character, your power, your personhood, all these things that are worth exploring for the rest of their lives, God, I pray that you would bring them right now that they could start the journey right now. And God, for all of us, would we believe that that's possible? If you can save us, you can save anyone. Help us to believe this, God. Would it change our lives? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.